Hello, everybody. It is your DPSA side for this week. I hope everyone is having a fabulous day. Whatever you might be doing, washing the dishes, running errands, just chilling out with your feet up, doing nothing. Maybe you're at work and you've got your earbuds in. I hope you're slacking off as much as possible because, you know, fuck the bosses. Am I right? Anyway, welcome to today's show, everybody. Hope you're having a good one. I've got two exciting announcements to bring to you. I've been teasing these weekly videos and the launch of a website for more months than I care to admit. It's been a long time. I've had to acquire, God, like a dozen new sets of knowledge, you know, when it comes to video shooting, editing, production, video equipment, lighting, cinematography, post-production software. You know, when it comes to the website stuff, I had to learn how to code a website, website design, how to get a domain name, how to run all this shit. It's been... Let's say that I've been drowning on the learning curve for the past six months. It's been a challenge. It's been a big challenge. And the worst part about it was that I was busting my ass and I didn't have anything to show for it. But no more. Because this week, I have officially launched the first of our weekly videos as well as the website. You can find both of those things at deadpundits.com. Go ahead and click over to the YouTube page. I'll have that linked to in this show description as well. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. Go ahead and like that first video. Give me a good comment. That'll help my position in the algorithms over at YouTube. And hopefully, you know, when that 20-year-old kid is watching his Jordan Peterson and Ben Shapiro videos, he'll come across a DPS media video. And it'll prevent him from coming down with right-wing broken brain syndrome or whatever. I'm doing my part to try to turn that right-wing bias over there on YouTube in a leftward direction. That's putting it lightly, folks. The anti-socialist propaganda that gets spewed by libertarians and even people on the hard right over there is just really, really disgusting. And a small group of us, uh, a bunch of plucky upstarts, are doing the best we can to try to turn that around. So support that project. If it's not me, support somebody else who's doing it. I know Zero Books is doing it. I know Ben Burgess, friend of the show, uh, shout out to Ben if you're listening. I know Ben is starting up his own YouTube channel. Excited about that as well. So if you don't support me, support somebody who's doing it because it is a platform that has a hu- hundreds, I would say hundreds of millions of people on it on a weekly basis. And it's really important that socialists are represented there. So check out deadpundits.com. I'm going to start posting articles over there starting next week. It's going to be a repository of articles, essays, videos, and other resources that represent the particular flavor of democratic socialism that you've all come to know and love from DPS over the past two and a half some odd years. So thanks to all the patrons for making this possible. Your financial and moral support has been absolutely essential in this process. If you're not a patron and you want to support this project, head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits, or you can access the support us section at deadpundits.com. In addition to supporting this new left agenda, you'll get access to our weekly B-sides. This week's B-side with Sean Guillory is going to land on Friday. The B-sides from the past two weeks of season three have been fire. You guys are definitely not going to want to miss the B-side that I did with Cedric Johnson two weeks ago. We talked about the legacy of the New Deal and the contemporary struggle for reparations. You know, reparations is a very controversial subject on the left. 
and in broader society. And Cedric Johnson is a go-to source of information and knowledge on that topic. So you guys aren't going to want to miss that B-side. Join up on the Patreon. I appreciate all your support, past and present. Enough out of me. Enjoy this week's episode with Sean Guillory. Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this new crazy mother. Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Welcome, everybody, to today's episode of DPS. I'm your host, as always, Adam Proctor. Today's topic is one that you are quite likely sick of hearing about. Russiagate has been in the mainstream media now ever since seemingly Trump was elected. Hillary Clinton's staffers revealed in the book Shattered, this tell-all memoir written by her staffers, that the Russophobia that was stirred up in the wake of Trump's victory was a tactical plan, a ploy, if you will, to distract the American public from the failures of that campaign. Ever since the left has been making a lot of hay out of this distraction, but not to much avail, unfortunately. The likes of MSNBC and the other dominant players in the progressive mainstream media have been obsessed with Russophobia. But what is Russia really up to? It seems that many of these commentators have a very shallow base of knowledge when it comes to Russian history, politics, culture, society, and all the rest of it. So I decided to do an episode on this very topic, and there's no better man to talk to us about Russia and all of those various aspects than Sean Guillory. Sean runs a really great podcast you guys have probably heard about before. I had him on the show previously. We did a really great episode on the history of the youth movement inside the Communist Party in Russia. Sean Guillory, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Adam. Pleasure to have you back. We've been scheming this episode for quite some time. <laughs> Russophobia yes. has been with us for years now, and we're all quite sick of it. So I think it was time to do an episode covering all the bases of Russian history, society, politics, and all the rest of it. We're going to go from approximately 1989 to present. <laughs> and if, if that seems daunting, we're not going to cover all the bases, but there's quite a bit of history coming out of the collapse of the Soviet project that we need to have under our belts if we can face down some of the most absurd claims coming from the mainstream about Russia. Sean, you run a podcast called Sean's Russia House Podcast. You have taken it upon yourself to educate the public about these topics on a weekly basis. Talk to me about that project. What's it like right now to be a specialist focused on educating a mainstream audience about Russia? It's frustrating, uh, as one would imagine. But at the same time, you know, the fact that I don't chase headlines is actually refreshing in terms of the shows that I do, the interviews that I do. So I have the ability to deal with topics that first, you know, interest me some books and things people are writing, doing really great research, and I think also providing an eclectic mix of topics about the region, not just Russia, but about Eurasia, Central Asia, the Caucasus, that people don't really know about. And the whole mission of the, sh of the show is to provide exactly that, to, to show people that you know, there is a lot of complexity to the history of, of Russia and its many manifestations, and there's a lot of complexity to its present. And these things we have to keep we have to keep these things in mind, uh, I think, when we uh, approach the political issues that you know Russia 
presents us today. What are some of the most egregious errors that you see coming out uh, from some of these newly and self-ordained Russian experts on social media in particular? There's a number of people who have cropped up on Twitter. They've got their blue check mark these days. They've got <laughs> tens of thousands of followers, if not hundreds of thousands of followers. And they are these sort of self-ordained Russian experts. What are some of the most egregious errors, lies, uh, half-truths, misrepresentations that you see coming out of that class of people? I think I think the the main one is just the overinflation of Russian power. I mean, we're talking about a country here that has the the economy the size of Portugal, and we're imagining it as having you know this incredible influence particularly with you know social media and it, its state english television station rt that it's given so much um power that i think it actually ironically plays into the hands of the russian state and putin personally in enhancing his idea that russia is a great power uh, can is an important player in global politics and look it can actually have an impact on america to the point where the entire political system is kind of frozen around the issue of the Russian threat. Um, but I think, you know, as is before with the Cold War, this inflation of Russian power uh, plays into a desire in the United States, of course, to, you know, bolster military budgets, bolster the relevance of NATO uh, and other things. So in a way, you get an interesting convergence of interests here between the people who are running the Russian government and the people who are running the American, you know, military industrial complex. I had on Tony Wood to talk about his recent book, uh, Russia Without Putin, actually at your suggestion. So mm -hmm. thanks. Thanks very much for that. Tony was a fabulous guest. People should go back and check out that show. If you haven't heard it, it aired approximately six months ago or thereabouts. And that is, you know, that's the thesis that Tony expounds on in his book. And so, mm -hmm. you know, that, that, uh, that this, this Russophobia is really playing in to the most negative of aspects of the of Putin's uh, reign, his regime, right, his 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 grasp on power, because although he is not this all knowing dictator that he's portrayed as, you know, on, by say Rachel Maddow on MSNBC or others, he certainly is uh, has authoritarian tendencies and has a death grip on the Russian political system in a certain type of way that we are not helping by no. any stretch. Uh, can I say something about this yeah. issue of Russophobia? Because yeah, um, it, it, it's a very contentious topic in terms of what it means. And I've been thinking and writing about this a lot in the last couple of years. And because the problem with it is, is that the Russian government likes to use Russophobia at any chance it gets, right? Any criticism of Russia, well, it's just Russophobia. And so one doesn't want to fall, of course, into justifying the Russian government's, you know, politicization and instrumentalization of this term. However, I think it is important to talk about Russophobia and define what it is. And the way I define it is when Russia as, is positioned as, an, as a threat to American the, – the, the basis, the foundations of American institutions. So, for example, you'll get rhetoric in the media about they're attacking our democracy, right? Yeah. Uh, or you see Russia as – it's positioned as a civilizational threat. Um, and what, what this what, – what I find most interesting about Russophobia is not necessarily what it says about Russia but what it says about us. And that is, one, how we imagine 
that place and what its power is and its influence. But really what it, what it really says is how it, it's a commentary on our own faith and in in, the strength of our institutions and our own anxieties about our institutions. If Russia could really undermine American democracy with a couple of Facebook posts, we have a real problem on our hands in terms of the strength of American democracy. Also, too, the use of Russia in terms of like, you know, one of the things that comes up a lot around the 2016 election is that, you know, the the, the, the election was decided by 50-some thousand votes in whatever state and the Russians would have just pushed that with their Facebook posts and, and pushed it over the edge in favor of Trump. And the thing with that is, is that I think it's a really big problem for trying to position Russia as – as having the ability to influence Americans' political choices. And this is an old trope that goes all the way back to 1917. But what it also says is that for the elites who, who peddle this idea, they're basically saying democracy is okay as long as they vote the right way. And when they vote differently, then democracy is, is, is a problematic. Therefore, the, it's somewhere, somewhere with the outside that's influencing, uh, influencing the electorate. In, and re- I, I honestly think the real problem is that they imagine influencing the American, the American elites, political elites, imagine influencing the American le- electorate to be their ballywick, right. not outside forces. <laughs> mm-hmm. How dare you take on, you know, the responsibility our responsibility, our, uh, you know, God granted, <laughs> you know, um, power to influence the rabble as we see fit. Exactly. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's no question that there's a cynical use of, you know, the risophobia to try to explain away this populist, uh, this rise in populism across the Western world, whether it be right wing populism or left wing populism. Yeah. Um, and, and I think, you know, your explanation it's really great because if you look at this so-called report that came out, I don't know, maybe about a year and a half ago, maybe a little, a little more. We can get you to talk about that in just a moment. But this intelligence report that came out is just nonsensical to anyone who had any contact with social media around the time of the election. You know, the, yeah. that these these uh, a couple segments on RT, you know, that had very poor circulation on YouTube and social media were somehow responsible for influencing, you know, the average Rust Belt voter in, I don't know, Ohio or Michigan or wherever else Hillary Clinton failed to campaign. Mm-hmm. Talk to us about this intelligent re- intelligence report that came out uh, about a year and a half ago now. What, what, did, what kind of claims were made in that intelligence report and what has that been used uh, to justify thus far? Well, I, I think some of the claims are, are correct in a sense. I do think that the Russians – in their own way, we're trying to basically throw whatever they could at the wall to see what sticks, right? Uh, out of this, uh, you know, so-called troll farm in St. Petersburg, and and there's many different arguments about what that institution is and what it's all about. But I think it's pretty clear to me, at least I agree that the the there was a hacking of um, the DNC, the hacking of John Podesta's emails, uh, this attempt to sway through social media, various forms of social media. But I just don't give that much efficacy to these things. I I just don't, you know, especially when you compare it to, you know, the mass amounts of, of advertising and, and, 
and money poured into political campaigns. I mean, really, if you're saying that the Russians could sway an American election with a couple of hundred thousand dollars through social media, you're basically mm. giving an argument against the power of dark money and other you know, ca- campaign finance schemes that go on in, a, in the United States, right? It, it should actually – if they really were this successful, the Russians, then there should be an entire rethinking – of the way political campaigns are done in this country. And so it's just really hard to buy. The other thing about it too is that uh, you know, a good portion of this this report relied on uh, an analysis of Russia Today or RT that was like five or six years old. And RT is a very interesting creature because you know, I've talked to people who who know people who work in RT. I know people who've worked for RT. I know, you know, I've talked to people who know Russian state media really well. And basically what they're saying is that, you know, they're basically justifying through all of this, you know, hysteria about Russia today's ability to change people's minds. It's really giving them the right for them to exist. They're using it. You know, one person told me that the managers at RT basically compile all of these Western media mentions of RT doing this and RT doing that to go in to justify their budgets. You know, you know, this is the, the, the Russian state was actually drawing down the budgets of this state television program. Um, and then I think it's just kind of given a little bit, you know, I don't, I honestly don't think many people watch this television, you know, this channel. Uh, and I do, th- one of the things I do think it is, it's, it's giving a lot of, you know, not a lot, but some Americans, at least young Americans jobs to do journalism uh, in Washington, and they're being paid fairly well. And so it should be, basically, it should be looked at in the context in which it exists and not given this overinflated presence in in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, living in and around D.C. as long as I have, I know that there are a number of state-sponsored media outlets that are, you know, practically invisible, you know, from mm-hmm. from from fairly large states as well. They show up to these protests, they, you know, will shove a mic in your face. You have to sort of say, now, who are you again? Uh, you know, some of them are a little shady. You don't probably want to be seen uh, on, on their channel, so you got to <laughs> do your research. But, right. uh, but you know, but th- these people are, are non-entities. They're non-players. And uh, so I think that's a very – it's important point to note that, you know, these people end up doing the work of their so-called adversary. Well, they they are adversaries, but they're so-called enemies, these so-called, you know. What was the nature of the claims about RT in that intelligence report? Because I want to break this down for people. This is the most insane aspect of of that report. Because, look, I mean, to say that there are troll farms, to say that there are various arms of the Russian intelligence state – that is meant to try to influence the rest of the world. It's it's a non-statement. It's just like, well, yeah, yeah. you know, water's wet, uh, grass is <laughs> often green, and the sky's blue when it's sunny outside. Yeah, it's this totally is what normative. state intelligence. This is what state intelligence agencies do. It would be shocking if they didn't have this. <laughs> shocking. I mean, they'd be asleep at the wheel. Somebody, right. you know, they should right. be fired. Which, which I should say that they themselves recognized. They themselves felt that they were asleep at the wheel. Um, if you look at this famous Garisimov doctrine that everybody trumpets out this idea of hybrid warfare, what that document is actually really about, his article is about, is about how the United that Russia needs is behind, is lagging behind the West in all of these various forms of political warfare, and that it needs to catch up. Uh, so, in, in many respects, they were a bit asleep at the wheel, though you know, by all intents and purposes, they've been doing this kind of stuff since two thousand eight. 
with Estonia and then later with Georgia. So, uh, or maybe in Estonia was 2005, I can't remember. But at any rate, you know, they've been engaging in these practices for a while in post-Soviet space. And um, 2016, well, I want, one would say maybe even beginning in 2014, do you get its expansion outside of, of post-Soviet space? So we're going to return to these themes for yeah. the B side today. So uh, we can we can save the the details and the allegations and the investigation itself. The Mueller report obviously is now been almost fully released. The, the The battle over that Mueller report is is now morphing into this hyper partisan form of warfare in D.C., wherein you might see the legitimacy of our various. You know, representative institutions thrown into question no big deal just life in 2019 in the, yeah. in the united states mm-hmm. just the hellscape we wake up in every day but uh so you can see that this is now the, the stakes have now almost been been um you know sublimated if you will into a higher form of absurdity mm-hmm. uh even further at a, at a further distance from the thing itself right we're first as tragedy second as you know i don't know the death of american empire who knows we one can hope uh <laughs> <laughs> but we'll move along. We'll move along here. Let's get into the substantive part of today's chat for the A side. I brought you on because not only are you a Russian scholar, but you talk to a lot of very smart and accomplished people uh, who study Russian history, culture, society, politics, and all the rest of it. I want to explain to my audience, and I need you to explain to me primarily, just what the hell has happened in Russia over the past, <laughs> I don't know, 30 some odd years. Everybody uh-huh. knows about the Russian Revolution on the left. A lot of us study it. Well, some some of us worship it. Well, yeah, yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll let you jump in there. What, what were you about to say there? No, 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 no. I, w- I don't want to comment on that. It will get off track. Well, yeah, so yeah, you're right to point out that well, we, many of us could and probably should know the Russian Revolution a, a little better, uh, better than these sort of just so stories that get passed down. Uh, you know, week to week. By the way, no, listen to uh, Sean's Russia House podcast. You'll 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 fill in a lot of those gaps if if you have them. But the fall of Soviet, the fall of the Soviet regime is far less known, not on the left, but certainly in broader society. Many of us grew up at some phase of our formative years, uh, seeing Yeltsin's Boris Yeltsin's face on the front page of the newspapers each day, whether they were small children in high school, college, or otherwise. There's some understanding at this point that that regime was quite corrupt. Yeltsin, the bumbling drunk was kind of a caricature in the U.S. Uh, news media. And then somehow Putin comes along. And, you know, and then he, he's transformed, transmogrified, if you will, into this supervillain. He wasn't always like that. Bottom line is Russian history over the past 30 years is just kind of a blur of, you know, Yeltsin to Putin to, you know, this uh, all, you know, all, all-encompassing supervillainous power that we now have to hear about on Rachel Maddow every, every week. Let's go back to the fall of the Soviet Republic. People, you know, when, when, they hear, when they hear about this, they think about the fall of the Berlin Wall. <laughs> they think about, you know, what, is, it, is it the Scorpions? What, the, what is yes. it? The, uh, yeah, it was the Scorpions. What's the name of the song? Uh, I've got it. I've got the <sighs> tune in my head now. <laughs> oh, man. I can't remember. Oh, the, I have it too. I have the image, but I don't oh, have the song. Yeah. Uh, winds of anyway. change. Winds of winds change. Of change. Winds yes. of change. They've got, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
anyway, I can't I can't whistle and laugh at the same time because it's a great song. It's it's moving, even if it is about you know neoliberalism ultimately. Anyway, um, that's what they that's the kind of imagery that is conjured when people think about the collapse of the Soviet Union. But there's mm-hmm. a whole hell of a lot more, uh, you know, uh, that that went on both before, during, and after the fall of the wall. What was the Soviet regime in in the in the seventies and eighties? We think of it as this sort of stagnant society. We read our knowledge of 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 the present backwards onto that historical moment, such that you know people in Soviet society in the nineteen eighties must have known that the end was near. But that wasn't the case at all, was it? No, no, no. I mean, you know, the, this the collapse of the Soviet Union or one may better put the dismantlement of the Soviet Union, was a surprise to everyone. I mean, there isn't a, a Russia expert around at the time that saw this coming. It, it, it surprised everyone. Um, and it surprised Soviet citizens. I think that that's what really kind of lent to the trauma of, of its disintegration and the difficulties of, of becoming a different type of state and society is that it was so unexpected that people were disoriented as a result. But in terms of like what the Soviet Union was in the 1970s and early 80s, um, for for the mass amount of people, it was it from some of the scholarship that's coming out now, it was fairly stable. It was predictable uh, for a good portion of the population. It was comfortable, uh, but it but it had no dynamism. It had no it had no way to really harness a new generation that was coming up. A post a post post war generation, people who were born in the '60s and in the '70s, you know, how would the system change to incorporate that new generation? And then also, I think, how would the Soviet Union adjust to the pressures of you know postmodern society and in a more global, technologically advanced uh, you know context? Uh, and I think that ch- those are the challenges, the kind of larger challenges it was playing. It was uh, engaged in a Cold War with the United States that it was never on on par to to compete with. Uh, it, it did its darndest to do this, but uh, one may say it, it never achieved parity with the United States in any shape or form. It got involved in a war in Afghanistan in the late 70s that had no real direction, had no real – you know, end game and just the Soviet Union got bogged down with this. And so I think in, in a larger sense, it just got to by the early 80s after the death of Brezhnev, and then you have two successful leaders as successions. You have uh, Yuri Andropov and, and um, Chernyenko who die after 16 months in office. Uh, you really have a system that's ossified both economically, ideologically, uh, and I think in, in societal terms. Uh, and so that really does open the space for some need to change. And I think that there is a general recognition of something had to change. But the question, of course, was what, what, what that change was, how much, how fast. Uh, and that's the, the issues that Gorbachev was confronted with when he became general secretary. I'd like to expound a little bit more on that for sure, What the, the kind of vision that Gorbachev had. I mean, we sort of see him as, you know, I don't know, Reagan's plaything. That's the way he's been remembered. Um, I don't know, maybe he himself uh, played into that, you know, that, that vision throughout the 90s because, I don't know, he started probably getting invited to some really fancy dinners you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, in Davos or, or what have you. And, you know, who could, who could say no to uh, – 
the, the finest of caviar in any way in terms of rewriting one's you know one's history historical trajectory. But what was he up to in the nineties? And let's talk about this uh, Gorbachev. Gorbachev. In the 90s. I'm sorry, in the 80s. My, oh, my yes. apologies. That, I'm asking a little too much there. I don't, I don't expect <laughs> you to have that type of intimate knowledge. Uh, let's, let's talk about Gorbachev in the 80s. And, and, and while you're sort of outlining that, talk, educate myself and our audience as well about the structure of the Soviet Federation, if you will. Because the, the dissolution, the dismantlement, if you will, really can't be understood. I, I got a, an appreciation for this doing some research for this episode reading a book that you recommended uh, that I'll throw up in the show notes. It's called The Tragedy of Russia's Reforms, Market Bolshevism Against Democracy. It's by Peter Redaway and Dmitry Galinsky. Really, really good book. It's thick. It's dense. It's going to take some time, folks, but it's worth it. Anyway, as they outline in that book, you can't understand this without understanding the structure of Soviet society because by 1990, 91, 92, you have a structure, you know, in, in essence, of dual power. And to make sense of that conflict and the conflicts that were formative in the 90s in Russia, you have to understand that structure. So spell that out for us. Well, so the structure of the Soviet Union, I mean, I think the first thing we need to understand is that it is a federation, a multi-ethnic empire. It's a federation of a bunch of mostly ethnically but also diverse multi-ethnic states, you know, Central Asian states – uh, the Caucasus and in its western borderlands, so Belarus, Ukraine, etc. So that's that's one component, uh, and and more and more people are starting to think about uh, in the last twenty years or so the Soviet Union as a multi-ethnic state, uh, and all of the challenges that that presented. At the same time, it's a, it's an incredibly politically centralized and economically centralized state. Um, so the Communist Party is, the, of course, the only game in town. Uh, and the party by the end of the Soviet regime essentially becomes a way in which you get patronage, the way you rise in society, whether in politics or economy. Uh, it's, it's, it, it's a way the system chooses new leadership going up through its ranks. Uh, and the economy too just doesn't have any flexibility. And there were attempts in the 1970s and, and early 1980s to apply some kind of flexibility to to allow for some kind of market forces to a certain extent. Uh, but none of those were able to break the dominance of uh, directors over the over the economy. Uh, in the sense of when you get dual power. What really happens there is that you, when they remove Article 6 of the Soviet Constitution, which basically says that the Communist Party is the only legalized political entity, you essentially get the dissolving of the party. So the, the party was always this multi you know, it encapsulated all different political views from nationalists to Stalinists. And once you remove the, the, the Communist Party's political hegemony, everyone melts away and forms different political parties. Also, when you get the breakup, and one of those things that you get in the 1960s and into the 70s is the growth of nationalism uh, in in Russia, in the Soviet republics, and also in the Russian republic. And this is a really curious story because, in many respects, the nationalism of, say, Ukraine, of Belarus, as much as it is, in Central Asia and in the Caucasus, is a product of the Soviet Union. I mean, Stalin is the one that, in many respects, created this, these, the pro, these proto nationalisms. 
Um, and so when you get these – so you have a process of a desire for national independence on the one hand and you have a, a desire for political openness on the other. Uh, and so once you remove the Communist Party's dominance and you remove or at least Gorbachev allows for Soviet republics to break away, then you get you – get, here you get two different entities with, when you describe as dual power. You have Gorbachev who is the head of the Soviet Union, right? This is before it all dissolves. And then you have Boris Yeltsin who is the president of the Russian Socialist Republic. And the question is, OK, once you dissolve – once the Soviet Union is dissolved in December 1991, uh, Gorbachev is the president of nothing, <laughs> right? And, and, and it's Yeltsin who actually wins this fight in terms of being the president of the, of the new now Russian Federation. So this dual power and, – and the dual power will continue really until 1993 – but in a different form because you'll have Yeltsin as the president of Russia and you'll have a parliament that was the, the, an old hold, holdover of the Soviet Union that still functions as the, as the other pole of, of Russian political power. It's a fascinating history and it brings to mind American history, United, the, the early history of the pre-United States, you know, the, the classic story we all hear in our history class somewhere somewhere in grade school about the Articles of Confederation and why they failed. Right. Right. You know, the, the Articles of Confederation, which are trying to confederate these loose, you know, this loose collection of uh, former colonies, you know, together in some kind of, you know, g governmental, whatever, some kind of collection of semi-sovereign but related groups and they didn't have the power to tax and then ultimately you know the federal government uh, wasn't able to exert any 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 authority or any power over the states and they sort of had to scrap it and start over now but but hey, let, yeah go ahead no but we there's another thing we have to consider though is is what's going on around or the system that exists as these things are happening so take the soviet economy if you're the director of a factory, let's say you're making textile clothes, right? You're getting cotton from Uzbekistan. You're maybe getting fuel from Ukraine. You're getting some other you know, parts or materials from another Soviet republic. The Soviet Union collapses. The supply chains and the distribution chains are now broken. Because now you're dealing not with a you know part of the say Uzbekistan that's part of the Soviet Union, you're dealing with an independent country. Yeah, yeah. You'd have to broker a trade a trade agreement of some sort. You'd have to exactly. Have, uh, and you'd then have to, you know regularize currencies. Anyone who's studying the euro crisis right now, right. Brexit will will understand or, the complexities there. Or if let's say the fact that in in the Soviet Union you had like Russian minorities, just take Russians for example, who live in Kazakhstan. When the Soviet Union collapses, are they ah, citizens yeah. of Kazakhstan or are the they citizens rights? of Russia? Yeah. And yeah. It, so basically when people basically go to bed and wake up in a different country, it poses all sorts of issues about you know, who, who they're citizens of, uh, what about, who's going to supply their pension because of the way the Soviet pension system, who's going to supply your heating and gas because of the way the Soviet utility system was created around the economy. So it poses all of these issues within a political context that is chaotic, that is fluid, and 
people have to adjust or just try to get by as fast as they could. Really fascinating points. You can see why this is a really fruitful terrain for, I mean, any number of, you know, academic uh, subfields, whether you're talking about, yeah, a national identity formation, uh, the meaning of democracy, uh, you're talking about various sort of trade, uh, you know, trade re- requirements of national, international, transnational trade. I mean, it's just, it's all here. It's really, it's, but it's, but it's muddled. It's cre- incredibly muddled. Let's unpack this a little bit. What was the catalyst? What brought about the the ultimate decision to dismantle that Soviet federated system? Yeltsin comes into play here. Let's talk about the rise of Yeltsin and the the kind of political block that backed him in this in this effort. Uh, Yeltsin comes from Yekaterinburg, which is in the western part of Siberia. He, like any other Soviet official, rises through the ranks of the Communist Party. Uh, if I remember his trajectory, he ends up basically running Moscow, which by all intents and purposes is the second most powerful position in the Soviet Union. Uh, and he is backed – and him himself is are backed by radical Democrats. These are the people who are uh, against the Soviet system ideologically, who want – who are tend to be more liberal or even neoliberal in terms of economics – uh, they are back – his core ba- is backing them. You could probably include other segments of society like the some aspects of the intelligentsia, uh, aspects uh, – you know, parts of the Soviet middle class to some extent. But really uh, his rise from say the, the, the head, the president of Russia, of the Russian Federation or the Russian Socialist Republic to the president of Russia, of a new post-communist Russia really is because of – the attempted coup against Gorbachev. I mean, there were already tensions between Gorbachev and Yeltsin. They they did not like each other in any personal way. Uh, but the really the, the shift in the power was the attempted coup by hardliners against um, Gorbachev in August 1991, and this created a way for Yeltsin to really step in, and the coup fails, and he really comes out on top as the defender of democracy as a defender of the forces of reform and the forces of change. And Gorbachev is incredibly uh, politically spent at this point. Uh, so it's really through that moment in, ni- in August 1991 where the failed coup allows to catapult Yeltsin ahead. And this is where you get these images of him standing on the tank and stuff like this. So he he's able to, to really ascend over Gorbachev uh, at this point, not many people are aware of this coup. It's uh, really formative in terms of this, you know, how the trajectory of this moment. You say it kind of has a contradictory outcome. Certainly not the one that the <laughs> that the uh, coup makers would have would have wanted. The total opposite. So, talk to us about this. It's known as the August coup, as you mentioned. Uh, mm-hmm. Members of the Soviet party, these hardliners, weren't happy with Gorbachev's reforms. Gorbachev's yeah. cozying up to the West. Cozying up to to markets, cozying up to you know global capitalism, they wanted a return to the glory days of you know uh, Soviet communism. What was going on with that coup, and uh, you know then project us into that outcome where Yeltsin uh, you know, somehow comes out on top. Well, in terms of the broad strokes, uh, you know, you have Gorbachev engaging in this process of reforms beginning in, 1990, in 1987 around there uh, of perestroika and glasnost. Perestroika is essentially restructuring. It's to 
allow for not uh, a market economy, but allow for a decentralization of the Soviet planned economy. So to allow for cooperatives, uh, to allow for some introduction of market forces. And then you have uh, glasnost, which is openness. And this is a period in which you get the removal of censorship and allow for political discussions. And in Gorbachev's understanding of these things, he sees these in tandem uh, where you can use uh, glasnost to criticize the conservatives because in this period you have a, you know, a, a big public discussion about Soviet history, about Stalinism, etc., and, and to use this against the hardliners and then through perestroika to basically start developing uh, different centers of power within, within Soviet society through the economy. Uh, the hardliners and, – and Gorbachev is – he doesn't have a plan uh, and he himself vacillates between you know, going faster, going slower and he's really kind of pinned in between say Yeltsin who wants to go faster and the hardliners who want to go slower. And his reforms of perestroika in particular cause a lot of economic chaos because here you get the breakdown of supply chains. You get the short food shortages. You get good shortages. Uh, really like all of the images of people standing in long lines uh, come from that period of like 1988, 1989. Uh, so the hardline to try to put a stop to it I don't think they were thinking of returning to – I don't think they knew – they didn't think they could return. Too much had changed to go back, to dial it back. But they wanted to at least slow things down and remove certainly some aspects of the reforms for sure. Um, begin to strike against, strike against Gorbachev in pure Soviet fashion when he's on vacation, just like they did the Khrushchev, uh, and, and try to take over the government. The, the most important thing of why the coup failed was the coup plotters did not have the army and they did not have the KGB. Uh, the KGB is an interesting player here because the of all of the the one institution in Soviet Russia besides say the top echelons of the government that actually know what's going on in the world is the security services. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and and they see they side with the reform by this period. Um, but at the same time nobody knows where all of this is going. Uh, you know, it really and and it gets ultimately out of control of Gorbachev just like so many attempts of Soviet reform does. Uh, and, and that really causes the political crisis and then when the coup fails and Gorbachev is discredited politically, allows for Yeltsin to step into the vacuum. Yeltsin steps into that vacuum, uh, consolidates his power uh, over uh, Russia, the Russian state, uh, which then begins uh, a multi-year you know, intensification of hostilities between Russia and the you know, the vestiges, the holdovers from the Soviet Union, the kind of federated, federal, whatever form of governance. You'll have to explain that to me and our audience. And that comes to a head around 1993 mm -hmm. in, real, in very dramatic fashion. Let's cover that sweep of that two to three year sweep of history and the rise of Yeltsin into his ultimate uh, victory in, in 1993. Mm hmm. Um, 1993, October 1993 is an incredibly crucial point and it's a point that at least in our American consciousness, 
we've forgotten about. And I think even in, in Russia, to some extent, it's, it's forgotten about, but less so. But it, it really is a turning point. So how did the so what was it, and how did the Soviet Union get there, or at least the post-Soviet Russia get there? Well, after you know the collapse of the system, once the Soviet Union is dismantled, you have Yeltsin, who's president of the new Russian Federation, but you have this holdover parliamentary structure, the People's Deputies, uh, that's the Parliament of Russia, and the new the new post-Soviet Constitution really creates a weak presidency and a strong parliament. It's a parliamentary system. However, the reform of the system, particularly the economy, is orchestrated out of the presidential's office, out of the president. And with Yeltsin is a crew of young reformers, the most principal figures being Igor Gaidar and Anatoly Chubayas. And then you have a, a Western advisors uh, and the International Monetary Fund and, of course, the new, you know, newly minted Clinton administration. And the idea from Gaidar, who really is the, the ideological uh, person behind this, they want to – their main concern is political. The economy is an instrument and I think this is really important. The reform of the economy is, an instru- is a political instrument. It's an instrument to smash the remnants of the Communist Party, which has the majority in, in the parliament. And more importantly, smash the power of the so-called red directors. These are the people who managed major aspects of the Soviet economy. So the idea is a rapid privatization called shock therapy. And that is that goes from things like unleashing price controls, letting things float, uh, which leads to inflation – and then the the privatization of uh, of the, the Soviet economy, which is a very chaotic and multi layered process that I, I, I'll address in a in a in a little in a different question. But essentially, what you have is between 1991 and 1993, you have two centers of power. You have the parliament, which is the constitutionally main fa- form of power, and the president. And the parliament is trying to put the brakes on a lot of. Gaidar's reforms. They're calling for his removal, which they eventually get. Uh, they are one day want to impeach Yeltsin, uh, and it really you get a standoff over this. Over base, the basic question is who decides, and both sides begin to entrench themselves. Um, and of course, Yeltsin is in a, a privileged position because he also has Western support, not only by the Americans but by the French and by the Germans. Uh, and, of course, the International Monetary Fund, which is really key here too. Uh, and the political crisis gets to the point where uh, you get – the most people at the time are calling for uh, a zero solution, which is new elections to parliament, new pr- elections to president, and the formation of a new constitution, basically to reset. Uh, this, of course, is doesn't you – know, Yeltsin doesn't like this. Parliament doesn't really like this. But everybody was pretty much agreed on the need for some kind of new constitution. Um, And the standoff basically breaks down to the point where Yeltsin uh, is in a political position where he has to resort to use force. So he unleashes tanks on the parliament. He has the parliament dissolved. Uh, They try to resist. Um, The estimates of people killed are – and I forget the numbers off the top of my head, but there's there's fighting in the street. And there's a real fear – of a civil war in Russia, which 
If anyone knows the history, it's an incredibly a disastrous prospect. Um, what Yeltsin does and what is really key about this moment in October 1993 is that by basically destroying parliament, by decapitating parliament through force, he's able to ram through a new constitution that creates Russia, refashions Russia as a presidential system. Parliament is now weak, weak, and the presidency is incredibly strong, kind of like the French system in some respects. And it's this system that allows for a Putin. Very interesting, very interesting stuff. We glossed over quite a bit. I mean, the, the, the real takeaway here, at least for me in reading up on this history, is just how, how uh, flagrantly illegal yes. <laughs> Yeltsin's actions were in this moment. Uh, you know, any, 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 anybody's read uh, Carl Schmidt out there, you know, you, you mentioned this question is over who decides. Well, the mm-hmm. sovereign decides. The sovereign decides. And the sovereign is he who makes the exception and decides. And Yeltsin in that moment stood up and, uh, you know, you need to, you need to, uh, you need to augment Schmidt with a little bit of uh, Marx or, or Gramsci at least uh, in order to understand, you know, exactly how the sovereign and he who makes the exception ends up uh, with the kind of forces behind himself to to pull that off um but this was this was a flagrantly illegal action uh, talk yeah. talk to us about that aspect of, of it and, and how it was then sort of normalized uh, by not only forces inside of russia but in the international community as well yeah it's it's um how can i put this i mean it was illegal it was a violation of the russian constitution it was a violation of all forms of of settling disputes in civil domestic disputes in in countries it you know unleashing uh the military force on on a representative body is is nothing less than a coup and it was a coup it was a presidential coup uh it's it's akin to um uh right after the 1905 revolution where you get the establishment of the russian duma uh, to Pyotr Stalipin's coup of, of, I think, 1909, if I'm not mistaken, which basically subordinates – turns the Duma into even more of a debating society than it was before. It's similar to that in that process. It's, it is a post-revolutionary and, – and I think it's, it's worth stating that the collapse – the disintegration of the Soviet Union was a revolution. And the people who are running the government, particularly Gaidar and the people around him, are revolutionaries. This is why uh, Ray Redway calls his book Market Bolsheviks or Market Bolshevism um, because for them, this was a way to destroy political opposition and destroy any uh, societal or political um, opposition to reform, to liberalization, to um, capitalism. Uh, and Yeltsin's coup is part of that because – it, it, it settled that question of who decides, who, where does power really lie? There's a, you know, an historical comparison, an allegory here. It's almost as though Russia lagged behind the rest of the, the, the Western world by, by a few decades. But the way that uh, these market fundamentalists inside of Russia are described, it's really fascinating. They're kind of these – Secret, secretive, cunning, conniving folks who pass around these crumpled, mimeographed <laughs> uh, pamphlets and pro-market 
you know, literature to one another, you know, mm-hmm. uh, to, to defeat, you know, behind the backs of the censors and so on. And, and they're, they're really plotting here. And there's a lot of, you know, I mean, you think, you read up about this ballooning history of the rise of the kind of neoliberal thought collectives, so, so-called thought collectives. There's a lot of controversy about that term and about the way that actually functioned and how neoliberalism actually came about. But skipping over that, there are a lot of parallels here, aren't there? I mean, you know, it's, it's, not, uh, it's not Friedrich Hayek. It's, uh, you know, someone else in Russian society, but it's, it's, it's very similar in that way, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, Gaidar himself, I was just reading up about this. Uh, he spent a long, lot of time in Yugoslavia. Uh, he read Adam Smith. He read Keynes. He read Friedman. He read all of these thinkers. Uh, and, and when you're in Eastern Europe, uh, you had more access to things. But, but not only. I mean, there were market ideas floating around even in the latter years of the Stalin period uh, of ways of thinking about how to – you know, uh, decentralize the Soviet economy in a variety of ways. And, uh, you know, these were bubbling up through uh, a variety of, of Soviet academic institutions um, because they were, they were struggling for how to change, like what can we do? And they were being influenced inevitably by the type of intellectual production that was coming out of the West. Um, so that's one part of it. The other part of it is that I don't think we should really underestimate the ideological crisis that the collapse of the Soviet Union created in the sense of it really created a, a, a time of euphoria in the sense of communism is defeated. It is a bankrupt idea. Mm-hmm. Capitalism is triumphant. Yeah. Uh, it, it, this is, you know, the end of history, blah, yep. blah, blah. Absolutely. Um, I don't think that this should be short-sighted in the sense of these ideas, not unlike how, you know, socialist communist ideas were uh, inspirational and on top of the world after the Russian Revolution. These ideas of liberalization, of shock therapy, of the experiments in Poland or the, even what was done in Chile – uh, and the advisors from Harvard and and the IMF that were coming to to Russia to give expertise and influence things, you know, they are riding a wave of ideological tri- triumphalism, uh, and I think this really does make a lot of those ideas at the time seem like correct ideas because. We lost and they won, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. In terms of the Soviet Union, the Soviet Soviet ideas lost the ideological battle. And the ideology coming out of the United States in particular won. And you can just look to Eastern Europe or look to Chile, you know, regardless of what it took to do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There was a confusing uh, – I mean I think in, in our moment today with the kind of dynamism that exists on the left, on the intellectual left, it's it's really difficult to, to understand the – the more hardline, you know, Soviet intellectuals, their inability to to innovate within the bounds of that system, without completely tearing it apart and just giving way to these free market ideals, uh, it's 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 really kind of it's it's interesting to think about. But 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 then again, right? We this is what history is all about. We're we're now in a, a, a position where we can learn from the the contradictions and the downsides of, of these market reforms, which is what, what we need to sort of transition into now because this euphoria uh, gave way to a, a very harsh 
uh, a very harsh set of realities for millions of Russians, uh, yeah. you know, descending into many levels of, of third world countries when it comes to economic, uh, you know, figures and educational attainment, life expectancy and, and so forth. So how did we get from, you know, the scorpions winds of change, Fukuyama end of history end of ideology to the kind of devastation that was visited upon Russian society throughout the mid to late 90s? Well, you know, if you think about in most periods of revolution, regardless of the ideological component of that revolution, it tends to be quite devastating for the majority of people uh, because, you know, they don't necessarily make the rules uh, and they have to adjust with the changes that are going on around them. I mean, you have you have instances in you know, the early 1990s of, of inflation going up 200 plus percent a month. Uh, you have people's savings being because of inflation being totally wiped out. You have people who have prominent positions in Soviet society, academic scientists, etc. Now their jobs are reduced to nothing. Uh, you have factories that were subsidized by the Soviet Soviet state for better or for worse, but literally these closing down and people not being paid for months on end. So you know the social devastation is really uh, key. And and another point, and this is a point that uh, you know Tony Tony Wood has talked about in his book, and it's one that I think needs to be emphasized. When we think of the collapse of the Soviet Union, we think of it as an event. Right there is 1991. There's communism, and then there's capitalism. Well, it's not. It's not an event. It's a process. The Soviet the Soviet Union didn't collapse in 1991. It collapsed throughout the 1990s, and therefore that restructuring of the basic forex society. Let me just explain in terms of utilities, because I think this is a really revealing story. If you're living in a monotown in the province somewhere in the Soviet Union, there is a big factory. The factory employs the majority of workers. I mean we know about this in our own country. Uh, but in the Soviet economy, the factory was the central provider for heat, electricity, uh, vacations, living space. It was really the central unit of social life in terms of organization, also medical care to some extent. So when the factory collapses, the heat, you don't get heat in your house, in your apartment building. And Soviet utilities weren't individualized. So if it wasn't just one apartment in a, in a, one apartment in a building, it was the entire building. So one of the, one of the things of, of, of both the collapse does is it cuts off a lot of the basic necessities of daily life where you know the state has to step in and try to keep these factories going just to maintain the utilities. Um, or when you have privatization, you have to privatize every single connection to the utility system. Uh, so it's a really like people think of you know enterprises being put in private hands, but and, and this is what one scholar wrote about in, in a fabulous book about neoliberalism in Russia. You get the privatization of so many aspects of daily life that it does make it comparable to our experience here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you think about the kind of expenses, the cost that would go into retrofitting that collective utility system or any other type of collective system. That's not going to be something 
that that might even you know I was going to say that's not something that a private enterprise would want to take on, but it might be so enormous, so immense of a cost that they couldn't take it on. They don't have the capital yeah. for it. They don't have the capital so, for it. So the state has to step in, and this is where you get these massive uh, grifts, yes. this bandit capitalism that emerges in the the void left behind uh, by the Soviet system. Which leads to you know the rise of the oligarchs, and the oligarchs now play a, a really important role not only in Russian society but certainly in our conception of Russian society yes. in, in terms of more so in our conception of Russian society. The way that that plays out in the Russophobia narrative in, in the United States, uh, Tony Wood talked about that a little bit on the show, but we should, we should uh, sort of riff on that for just a, a quick second, and then we'll transition into the B side because really what I want to do here is – pave the way for the rise of Putin and set the stage for what life, what political life is really like in Russia under Putin and then compare and contrast that to the Russiagate hysteria. So let's talk a little bit about the, the rise of the oligarchs. Many of the people by the, by the mid to late, certainly late 90s, who were staunch advocates of these so-called reforms of shock therapy in Russia had a series of uh, what I'll call come to Jesus moments, <laughs> to put it lightly. Uh-huh. And many of them by, you know, 97, 98 were, were acknowledging that, that a form of bandit capitalism had arisen. And, and they were really, like I said, rethinking their assumptions about what could be achieved by, by these, these, these forms of shock therapy. You know, whether we could reproduce, I mean, the very subjectivity of, uh, you know, a citizen of the United States, if we could somehow reproduce that as in a test tube and then implant it <laughs> in Russian society. And we had to really go back to the drawing board here. Mm-hmm. And uh, so talk to us about the rise of the oligarchs very, very briefly and, and what kind of influence that played on the political system in Russia. Um, so – you know, as, as good Marxists, we should always consider the primitive accumulation of capital and how that shapes a capitalist system. And, and in many respects, the capitalism we have in Russia today was born out of a very particular type of primitive accumulation. Uh, so I'll just – to make it brief, I'll make two points. So one of the most important aspects of Russian privatization happens in late 1995 where you have a scheme called loans for shares – this is essentially the 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 oligarch the the rich Russians that have money and I, that's a, how they got their money is a very long story that I'll put aside for now but they have money the government has no money and particularly Yeltsin needs to be reelected so he needs funding for his reelection campaign and essentially what these rich Russians do is they get together. And they, they, their political concerns are basically we can't allow the comp- Yeltsin's incredibly unpopular. You know his his approval ratings in single digits, and these rich Russians they they can't have the communists come back because they fear if they communists come back they'll expropriate their property, all of which was gotten through ill-gotten gains, um, and so they lend the government about one point eight million dollar billion dollars, excuse me, and in exchange for that, the government gives them shares in some of the commanding heights of the Russian uh, former Soviet economy, so oil, gas. Uh, raw materials, et cetera. And just to give you uh, – and these loans, the loan to the state, that everyone knows there's no way to the, – the state's going to be able to pay this back. So essentially what they're doing is they're, they're selling off the entire uh, 
Soviet economy that was built by the Soviet people uh, to a select group, a, hand, a real handful of people uh, for bargain, bargain basement prices. So just to give you one figure that I, I meant to write down. So um, Vladimir Potanin, who is one of these rich oligarchs who benefits from the loans for shares, he's still around today. He acquires Norilsk Nickel, the main nickel producing company out of that developed in the Soviet Union. For $170 million, he got a company that had revenues of $3.3 billion and profits of $1.2 billion a year. <laughs> Hell, I, I mean, if, if that offers on the table, I'd find a way to raise that capital. I mean, you know, I'd, <laughs> I'd sell off my family members and, and the uh, you know, non-essential organs in my body. Uh, right. That, that's a hell of a deal, man. That's yeah. a deal. Talk about uh, you know <laughs> deal makers, uh, yeah. the art of the deal. Yeah, I mean, Trump this... <laughs> wishes he could make a deal that good. Yeah, I mean, and, he, and he, Jesus. And it's important to note that a lot of these guys, Potanin, Prokhorov, uh, most of them are still around today. Only a handful of them, particularly the ones in media or at least put in invested in political opposition once Putin came to power, were either arrested or run out of the country. But the vast majority of these people who benefited from the 1990s are still around and they're doing very, very well. Uh, and they still control you know, large amounts of the Russian economy, even the, some of it that's been re- – you know, uh, the state has taken over. Um, a lot of these people are still benefiting off of these the arrangements of the 1990s. The other thing – and the other point I want to make about the accumulation of capital in post-Soviet Russia is the role of violence. So here you have a, a situation in which property is being seized literally uh, and – but the state has no mechanisms in terms of its use of force to regulate that, that distribution of property, right? There's – the rule of law doesn't work. Uh, the forces of the police don't work. Uh, even the security services are, are fractured. So what a lot of these people do is they turn to organized crime as a way to enforce property ownership. Because you know, if you are a director of a, pro- of, a of a Soviet enterprise like a factory, Soviet Union collapse. In a lot of cases, these people are like, "I ran the factory, I own it." But how are you going to prevent? Somebody down the down the street from coming in and saying, "No, I own it." You have to appeal to some use of force, and that use of force is tends to be the only people who have guns, or at least the means to carry it out, is organized crime. Organized crime also has distribution networks for for flowing of goods and services, so they are also part of that early development of Russian capitalism. And I think uh, to understand Russian capitalism today, you have to. Also, you know, as you told Cedric, eat your vegetables and learn yeah. about how this <laughs> primitive accumulation uh, was uh, happened and how the vestiges of that those methods continue in Russian capitalism today. Right. Yeah. And lest we forget, as you as you mentioned, as you alluded to, you know, the United States has a has a rich history of oligarchy. The, of course, the, the, the founding of our of our republic here, you know, you think about the Morgan family and all the rest of them who were were gifted, uh, you know, railroads and land for pennies on the dollar. Absolutely, so this this primitive this process of primitive accumulation is formative, and I think drawing out these parallels between, you know, this kind of 
allegedly exceptional you know, corruption in Russian society versus our pristine, you know, democratic and <laughs> capitalist, you know, yeah. situation we've got over here is just yeah. completely unjustified. And I think yeah, well, the left would do well to draw those parallels uh, rather than picking a side in this, you know, this uh, reified and abstract Russophobia debate. Now – I want. I just want to mention. Okay, how does Putin figure in all of this? Yeah, right? let's 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 tease Putin, and then we'll move to right. the B side to talk more explicitly this an, about that. This is another really critical moment when when Yeltsin resigns in 1999, December 31st. Um, it's it's his. You know, in in many respects, you have to give Yeltsin a lot of credit. Uh, he is the you know first leader in Russia uh, that you know after. Gorbachev, but he was the head of nothing at that point, uh, who willingly gave up power and allowed for some kind of transition. Uh, and, and I really think he, he deserves that credit for that. Um, now, in 1998, there is a total financial crisis in Russia. The ruble collapses. It's part of the wave of, of Asian tigers that are collapsing, plus Argentina of the period. It's a, it's a, a global thing. Russia uh, can't pay back its loans. It defaults on its IMF loans. And uh, Yeltsin uh, is already kind of sick. He's drunk most of the time. And Putin – and this is the important aspect of Putin. Putin is a consensus candidate. He's basically someone that was put forward, virtually unknown, by Yeltsin. Uh, Yeltsin liked him because he was smart uh, and unambitious. He didn't – he wasn't part of a faction. Mm. Uh, he seemed loyal. Loyal. He was uh, not likely to prosecute any of Yeltsin's yeah, folks. Yeah, yeah. and if, that if, he, I, if Tony Woods' uh, account is right? to be believed, absolutely. And so uh, Putin comes forward. He, he's you know not, he's appointed president. He wins the presidency in March two thousand, and then he gathers all of these olig- these rich oligarchs, and they truly are an oligarchy at this point because the difference. I don't think that there are, there are many oligarchs in Russia today. In the 1990s, there were oligarchs because not only did they have wealth, they had their hands on the levers of the state. They had captured the state. And what Putin does is he assembles them in a famous meeting and he tells them, look, we all know how you got rich. We all know what you did. But we're not, we're not going to renegotiate – the 1990s. Uh, as I long know as what you, you did, Fredo. You broke my heart. <laughs> right. <laughs> Except he didn't, you know, send him off in a rowboat. What right. did he do? What did Putin do to these old Well, guys? he basically said, look, um, we are the state. And as long as you defer to us, you can keep your wealth. That means don't participate in politics unless you're called upon. When we he, – he sets up essentially, for lack of a better analogy, a feudal structure where your wealth is the patrimony – of the state. And the and you can see the the oligarchs like Mikhail Khodorkovsky who started to dabble in politics and invest in 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 political parties but also contemplated selling off parts of his oil company to the Americans which is also a no-no. Uh, he was arrested. The people who didn't play ball were run out of the country, the ones who controlled the media. Uh, the ones that didn't are doing quite quite well nowadays. Um the other point about privatization that I was reminded of last night when I was reading up on things is what's miraculous about the privatization of Russia is how few foreigners acquired that property. I think this is really significant. 
that they they the selling off and the theft of the property went mostly to Russians. There were certainly Americans that benefited playing various schemes, but nonetheless, you don't have multinational corporations like Exxon, Chevron, or whatever you may say, Monsanto owning the the commanding heights of the Soviet economy. Yeah. In fact, um, foreign direct investment uh, almost entirely collapsed in that in that period, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. So yeah. so I think the important the, the point about Putin is is to understand him as, in class terms. And what he did is he essentially established rules, rules of the game. Because by 1998, 97, 98, these people are, are shooting at each other in the street in some cases. There are assassinations of bankers. And what he, he does is he reasserts the sovereignty of the state or the sovereign as such to basically allow for a system of capital accumulation – of, of property ownership, of essentially the, the basics for what a capitalist system needs. And that is a means to settle disputes that isn't pulling guns on each other. Now, is it perfect? No. Does Putin and his cronies have an outsized power and control over this? Absolutely, yes. Uh, do politics come in in terms of who gets persecuted and who doesn't? Absolutely. But nonetheless, at least in the early 2000s, he was, and I would say he continues to be, a, a president that allows for the settlement of disputes amongst Russia's elites and prevents them from doing what they've done for many generations, and that is cannibalize each other. And now we have appropriately set the stage for Putin, the you know uh, omnipotent overlord of <laughs> Russian society that has been grossly inflated and exaggerated and taken out of context by pundits in the United States in the wake of this Russophobia and this Mueller report shenanigans. There is a bit of truth to that, and I talked at length about about this very topic with Tony Wood in our episode from some months ago about you know questioning whether or not this delicate synthesis, consensus, whatever, you know, this pastiche of of power and uh, legitimate authority can can survive the death of Putin, if he can actually sail off into the sunset, you know, go out and go off into the Russian wilderness and uh, fish and uh, wrestle <laughs> grizzly bears or whatever you know, <laughs> it is in the mythology, uh, or, or whether or not he's he's going to have to have his thumb on the scale and keeping this you know, his his thumb in the, the 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 hole of the dam, I guess, is a probably a better analogy until he dies, and if, if this system will be able to to survive him. These are all legitimate questions, but the way that you know the way that this this mythology has been taken up in in the latest Russophobia, uh, you know, shenanigans is is worth talking about. We're going to continue this discussion into the B side. Man, that was a a broad sweep of the last thirty thirty five years of Russian history. Um, I've learned a lot in this process. You you made a lot of recommendations for reading in order for me to prepare for this, but but uh, nonetheless. A lot of uh, really interesting nuggets that, that I've picked up in the course of this hour. So I'm sure our viewers feel the same way. Sean Guillory, thanks so much for joining us, everybody. Check out Sean's Russia House podcast. I'll link to it in the show notes. If you're not listening to it, you should be because it's really informative. And week thanks after lot, week. Adam. Yeah, no problem. A week, I'm happy to, happy to do it. Uh, week after week, you, you cover a lot of really great topics, not only on Russia, but, you know, uh, of the entire, uh, I don't know. How do, how do you characterize that region? How do you characterize it? <laughs> Um, 
It just says Eurasia. Eurasia. Uh, right. Yeah, because I want to – like, for example, one of the things I'm going to release in the next couple of weeks is, uh, is a talk that I recorded here at the University of Pittsburgh on Mongolian politics. And like who yeah. knows anything about Mongolia, right? <laughs> right, like, right. But uh, yeah, and then – and as part of my job here at the Russian East European Eurasian Center is I'm doing um, – some stuff on Eastern Europe. So I'll also have an interview I did with a, a literary scholar on Polish secret police files, which is really fascinating. Oh, nice. Uh, doing an analysis of the police files as a literary scholar. Um, <laughs> it's really it's really fascinating stuff. So I've, I've been doing a little bit more in Eastern Europe, but the primary – I mean because of my interests, I know more about Russia and, and I know more about history. I try to do other things, uh, other other you know disciplines – I tried to include Central Asia, et cetera, but uh, yeah. It's good stuff. Uh, Thanks. It's been around for a long time. A lot of a wealth of knowledge there. People should check out that podcast. We're going to move to the B side now. We're going to continue this conversation about Putin, Russophobia, and you also recently published an article with former guest of DPS, Raphael Kachaturian, called Mapping the American Left. So we're going to have a somewhat tangential conversation as well about the state of the American left, American socialism, what are the movements that brought it into existence, and perhaps what the what the fate... We're going to determine the fate of the American left, Sean, is what I'm saying. <laughs> Thanks again for joining us, Sean, on the A side. All the patrons out there, look forward to that B side coming up next. And if you're not a patron, you're going to miss out on that. So head over to www.patreon.com slash deadpundits. And smash that subscribe button. You'll get access not only to the coming B-side, but to our entire back catalog of B-sides. We appreciate your support. Uh, check that out. Don't miss out. Sean, thanks again for joining us on the A-side. Thanks a lot, Adam. Oh, this you crazy mother...